How does President Trump create a path forward that both uh, helps China get back closer to that road to reform and helps the U.S. maintain that role of global leadership in the, in the world economy? Dismissing TPP rather than fixing it was a self-inflicted wound on the part of the United States. If they can buy a tech company here, we should be able to buy a tech company there. This is not at all what happens. After all the tough talk on trade, we've seen nothing from the Trump administration. So one question is whether U.S. companies are partly to blame for this. Are they running scared of China? China 21 is produced by the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. We are a university-based think tank that produces original research to anchor major policy discussions on China and its relationship to the United States. This podcast features expert voices, insights, and stories about Chinese economy, politics, society, and the implications for international affairs. Learn more at china.ucsd.edu. Welcome to China 21. I'm your host, Samuel Choi. Today, we have two trade policy experts whose work have contributed to the formulation of U.S. trade policy. Former Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky served as the U.S. trade representative from 1997 to 2001. She was responsible for the negotiation of hundreds of complex market access, regulatory, and investment agreements with virtually every major country in the world. She is best known internationally as the architect and chief negotiator of China's historic World Trade Organization Agreement. She is currently Wilmer Hale's senior international partner, where she continues her legal career in international litigation, commercial negotiations, investment and regulatory advice, and dispute resolution. Ambassador Borshevsky is on campus to deliver the fifth annual Robert Ellsworth Memorial Lecture addressing China's growing protectionism and the U.S. response. Dr. Gordon Hansen is the Acting Dean and Pacific Economic Cooperation Chair in International Economic Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, where he also directs the Center on Global Transformation. Dr. Hansen specializes in the economics of international trade, international migration, and foreign direct investment. His recent research project on the effects of China's rise on U.S. workers, firms, and markets spurred a wide discussion on U.S. trade policy at the height of the 2016 U.S. presidential elections that is still being debated today. The following is a conversation between Dr. Hansen and Ambassador Barshevsky on China's commitments and market reforms since joining the WTO and the path ahead in the trade relationship between the world's two biggest economies especially under an American-first posture in the U.S. and rising nationalism around the world. They explore the policy and enforcement tools the U.S. has to confront China over the imbalance and lack of reciprocity, and the immediate political pressure on U.S. policymakers to address the loss of jobs due to trade. Ambassador Barshevsky, it's really our pleasure to have you in the studio this morning. Uh, we're delighted to have this opportunity uh, for you to visit UC San Diego. My great pleasure. It's always wonderful to be here, and it's wonderful to be with you. Well, let's, um, let's jump right in, and let's go back to uh, the late 1990s, mm -hmm. when you're in the process of negotiating China's accession to the World Trade Organization, which ended up being one of the major events in the global economy uh, of, of this century. And walk us through what the environment was like at the time, what you saw as the key issues on the table, 
and then how things played out after the fact in terms of China living up to or not living up to the commitments it made in, uh, prior to 2001. Well, let's first uh, go back in time. You might recall that Charles' accession, uh, China's accession to what was then the old GATT system, G-A-T-T, which was the forerunner of the WTO, actually began sometime in the early 1980s. And these were talks that really went absolutely nowhere. Neither side quite understood the other side, and neither side was particularly ready for the other side. But during that period, of course, China had embarked on a series of internal economic reforms, dated typically to 1978-79 with Deng Xiaoping, where it experimented with various forms of quasi-market economy uh, activities, including the early allowing of foreign companies into China under certain circumstances, uh, as well as the decollectivization of farming and so on and so forth. And when the Clinton administration took office in 1992, uh, one of the areas was, well, what do we do about China, the fact that it's a large country? the fact that it is interested in talking, perhaps, further reforming its economy. And indeed, the second question was, what do we do about Russia? And the view at the time was always, of course, Russia was far ahead of China, and perhaps Russia would be a very good target to try and move along the path of economic reform internal in the country, but in a manner consistent with Western economic norms and market economics as exemplified by what became the WTO. Well, China was actually the more productive target. And the reasons were, of course, a fifth of the world's population, a nuclear power, permanent member of the National Security Council of the UN, the world's largest standing army, and a highly reformist premier, Zhu Ranji, as you'll recall, whose interest was in seeing China's economy revamp in a very significant way, including reductions of state control on the economy and the introduction of greater market forces. So negotiations in the Clinton years began really in earnest with China, understanding first there would be no political accession to the WTO, Rather, the only way China would become integrated into the global economy was to match the kinds of obligations countries make within the WTO context, which is to say very radical reform of their trading regime, covering all goods, services, agriculture, and so on. China uh, embarked on that. The negotiations were very, very difficult, as you can imagine. All countries take a risk, if you will, in revamping their economies. Every once in a while, you guess wrong, and things don't turn out very well for the country at issue. But in most instances, countries use international agreements to cement what they actually want to do internally, but are precluded politically from doing so. And so they need an external force and external arrangements with the rest of the world to propel an economy forward, and China was no different. Uh, at the end of the day, the most difficult areas for China was in the services sectors, where China's economy was quite nascent. There were very few 
domestic services providers, the US and Europe are services powerhouses, and the concern was always that China wouldn't develop its own indigenous capability. But those issues over time were resolved. Then what happened? China joined the WTO and implemented, I thought quite faithfully, the earlier series of reforms. And you saw China's economy become a magnet for inward investment, a magnet also for exports. Recall that today China takes one in every $12 globally in exports. The only other country that does that is the United States of America. No one else has an import market in their own country that robust. So China was implementing its commitments. But then, by about 2006, 2007, and particularly by 2008, you saw the reforms slow. Implementation had largely occurred. All the phase-ins were largely completed. And then China took a pause. And under the administration, <clears throat> initially of Hu Jintao and Wen Jiaobao, China's reform and opening began to sputter. And under Xi Jinping, it has virtually stopped. And the result is that instead of further progress in integrating further in a Western, sort of dominated, if you will, economic system, China has instead retreated and put in place of further reform and opening a spate of domestic policy measures that have been extremely discriminatory against U.S. and foreign companies, and indeed have slowed its own economic growth. So we see the reemergence of the state sector, reemergence of state control in critical strategic areas. We see the championing of national companies, massive subsidy programs to create entire new industries. Semiconductors is an example often used. Uh, we see discrimination against foreign companies, particularly with respect to the idiosyncratic enforcement of law. Uh, we see cyber espionage, continued difficulty in protection of intellectual property, so on and so forth. And <clears throat> these measures have, first of all, had a deleterious effect on China's own economy as the support of the state sector the support of champion companies has fueled massive increases in debt in China. We see foreign companies sour on the China environment as their own prospects have diminished somewhat during this period. And we see, of course, countries, the U.S., but also Europe, Japan, and others become increasingly concerned rhetoric has become increasingly toxic with respect to China. And I'll give you only one figure. In 2016, 27 countries brought 119 trade remedy actions against China. This tells you something has gone drastically wrong with China's internal processes. So it's interesting that you cite 2007-2008 at the time that reform slowed down, both because uh, many folks point to abuses of China in the early 2000s, allegations of currency manipulation, lack of protection of intellectual property, 
uh, and the existing state subsidies of exports in, in various different uh, 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 forms. And also 2008 is well before Xi Jinping comes into power. So I wonder, before we talk about the, the current environment and the challenges that we face in trying to get China to abide by its earlier WTO commitments and what the role that U.S. trade policy might play there, um, take us back to the, the era immediately following China's joining the WTO. And if you could, you know, think about a counterfactual world and how might China's behavior have been, had been different had the U.S. not approved China's WTO accession and it not had that, as you, as you mentioned, that e external force helping it lock in some reforms that the, the government had uh, anticipated making? So I think the counterfactual is a difficult one because you presume that the United States would have or could have blocked China's entry into the WTO. Every other country in the world wanted China's accession. The U.S. led. The U.S. could have said no. The U.S. would have succeeded in isolating itself from China. But its allies, that is to say, the allies of the United States, Europe and Japan in particular, uh, and other major economies, were anxious that China be in the WTO because of a general integrative vision of the world that has animated U.S. trade policy and the trade policies of our uh, partners since the end of World War II. Of course, this was Roosevelt and Truman's great understanding at the time, and it has what uh, has powered, if you will, the notion of global integration, and that is that coming out of war, the United States was the only major power standing, and that what was needed to cement a fragile peace were two things. Number one, the rejuvenation of global economic growth, which, as you know, had plummeted, particularly during the uh, Great Recession, and number two, countries having a stake in each other's success to try and avoid wars among the great powers. That has been the animating vision behind all of the institutions with which we are familiar post-war. The WTO, its forerunner, the GATT, the IMF, the World Bank, NATO, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. All of these institutions were designed to rebuild an absolutely shattered world economy, and to try and ensure that great powers would no longer fight among themselves and take the rest of the world with them. So as you look ahead then to the creation of the GATT system and then the WTO, you see its continual expansion. Indeed, the desire for continual expansion of that system including among countries with entirely different political regimes and entirely different economic regimes, as a way to foster at least some degree of consistency or some degree of compatibility among the great nations of the world. And the WTO, I think, does do that. It is most assuredly not a perfect institution. Nothing is. Uh, but I do think it has lived up to its general function and the conception of it. 
So with respect to China, it is very difficult when the United States says to a country, please join since the early 80s, and when the country makes a massive series of concessions unheard of before and frankly since, for the U.S. to say no. What does that repudiation mean? What's the response of the rest of the world to that repudiation? The response is to isolate the United States, not the other way around. So that would be my first point. That is to say, I think the counterfactual, while one never knows, obviously one never knows, um, suggests that there would have been some guarantor of continual progress had China not been in, or that the WTO failed because there was not a guarantor of continual progress once a country is in. And I think both propositions are false, uh, and neither proposition is a reasonable proposition. With respect to the earlier years of China's entry into the WTO, most assuredly, I don't mean to imply they were smooth. In that regard, China was not like many other countries before it, most notably Japan. The issue of currency manipulation has always uh, troubled me in the sense that while it's fair to say China's intervention in markets today is to prop up its currency, not to devalue its currency, there have been a number of points during the past 15, 18 years since China's accession, where currency manipulation was quite clear on the part of China uh, as a means to gain competitive advantage. The U.S. government theory during the Clinton years, but of course China joined after uh, the Clinton term ended, during the George W. Bush years, but even the Obama years, has always been to discuss these issues quietly with the hope that one would get a better result by not, for example, naming and shaming on the currency manipulation side. I don't have a problem with using that approach initially, indeed maybe more than once. But there's a point at which it becomes clear that quieter approach is not effective. And so over time, a more muscular approach, at least of shaming and naming, um, probably should have been tried to see if that might have gotten China's attention uh, more directly. Um, it wasn't used. I think what we see now is a Trump administration initially coming in saying we would name China currency manipulator from day one, and the Treasury Department basically saying not so fast, and I think the Treasury Department is right, given the current situation. But I do think this issue of currency manipulation, which is critical to trade flows, uh, is one that needs to be rethought and one that, while quiet negotiation should always be the initial option, should not be the only option that's on the table. So the you mentioned the importance of the uh, set of institutions that were created after World War II, which uh, were the foundation for global economic growth for the, over the course of six decades. 
And the International Monetary Fund was created in part to deal with the balance of payments crises that had led to beggar thy neighbor exchange rate policies right. in, uh, in the pre-war era. Um, and so we, in, in principle, have a series of institutions that are in place to help us deal with the challenges that we face in the current environment. Um, uh, it's also interesting that you mentioned uh, that 2007-2008 is the time that reform slows down because initially China's response to the global financial crisis was to engage in this massive credit binge, uh, which propped up the global economy, which helped save a number exactly. of emerging economies from having a quite severe collapse, and uh, which made folks perhaps a bit too sanguine about events in China. And since we now have seen the return of the national champions approach, a far more muscular state, and Xi Jinping perhaps being more focused on consolidating and maintaining the Communist Party's power than engaging in further meaningful attempts at, at reform. Um, on, uh, and in the United States and in Europe, we have now this deep questioning in the political arena of the value of those institutions that we created. So that brings us to what um, if the Trump administration were to ask for policy advice about how to engage China, uh, about how to uh, uh, revitalize support for the set of institutions that have maintained the global economic system. Um, what would you say? Uh, is there, uh, given the skepticism that we see in Congress and in certain folks that, that, are, that are advising President Trump closely, uh, U.S. commitment to its past commitment seems to be very much uh, in question. Um, so how does, how does President Trump create a path forward that both uh, helps China get back closer to that road to reform and helps the U.S. maintain that role of global leadership in the, in the world economy? So I think these are two very different questions. Take the U.S. leadership role, first of all. Um, in this respect, I think the pronouncements made thus far by the administration are very troubling. The America first stance, the notion that uh, we are in essence an island, that we are somehow disconnected from the rest of the world, and that that may be a positive thing for the United States is extremely dangerous. And it's dangerous on a number of fronts. And first of all, we're 5% of the world's population. And by 2020, 80% of global consumption won't be occurring here. The majority will be occurring in Asia. If you want to boost exports, if you want to boost manufacturing in the US, if you want to continue being a leader in services and technology, to whom are you going to sell if you've decided that the United States comes first and the rest of the world quite tertiary in interest. So in terms of our own economic prospects, the notion that the U.S. would absent itself is uh, uh, reckless, reckless. Uh, second of all, U.S. companies do best in a rules-based environment. Certainty, predictability, due process, transparency, the hallmarks of um, American civil conduct are extremely important to U.S. economic success abroad. It's one reason the U.S. likes to say 
it's important for us to write the rules and to bring people along with our way of thinking. It doesn't mean everyone copies exactly, of course not. But it does suggest that the U.S. has a pole star position in creating an environment best conducive to its interests globally, while also ensuring others benefit. The U.S. has always proceeded much more on a win-win basis than a zero-sum basis. That has enhanced our global bona fides. It is what allows the U.S. to lead and to bring other countries within its orbit, because it is a system at the end of the day that helps promote commerce in the most efficient and fairest way. Not perfect by any means, but better than anything else that's out there. Of that, I am sure. So the notion that the U.S. would not want to reassert its preeminence in this area is also, to my mind, reckless and short-sighted. So that's on the global leadership side. I thought in that regard, dismissing TPP rather than fixing it was a self-inflicted wound on the part of the United States. Asia is a difficult region for U.S. companies to access by barrier, by culture, and many other factors. If you want a strong China policy, you also need a strong Asia policy. And here you had countries that formerly had relatively little interest in doing exclusive arrangements with the United States, all wanting to jump on board. They finally say yes, and what does the U.S. do? Says no. This was a self-inflicted wound, which simply creates a vacuum in Asia we certainly don't need and is not in our interest. Now, with respect to how to deal with China, per se, as a separate matter, uh, I think there are a couple of things to think about. One has to do with our enforcement regime generally, and one has to do with encouraging further systemic reform in China. So first on the enforcement regime side, the U.S. often takes a quite narrow view of enforcement under its trade laws. We bring WTO cases. They're rifle shot. They focus on a particular measure a foreign country might take. But in the case of countries like China that use massive subsidies to create industries, solar, wind, biotech, semiconductors, any one of a number of other fields, the U.S. enforcement tools should be used to attack what are called creation subsidies. These are the same kinds of subsidies the WTO has found illegal in the case of Airbus. Why aren't we using the same theories to get at these endemic programs of industrial creation, rather than using our laws in the narrowest possible way and in a rifle shot approach which only amounts to playing whack-a-mole at the end of the day.
So one entire area that I think the administration should be looking at is the more creative use of our trade remedy laws, more creative use of executive orders, and a greater focus on reciprocity, particularly in investment. This is an area not covered by the WTO at all, essentially. Uh, my own view is, if China can buy a company here, let's say an agricultural company, we should be able to buy an agricultural company there. If they can buy a tech company here, we should be able to buy a tech company there. But this is not at all what happens. China's investment restrictions are legion. They are many, they are across all sectors of the economy, and yet the US, Europe, many other countries have relatively open investment regimes for China. So whether it's China or other countries, investment is an area where reciprocity ought to be the norm. It's in our interest to see capital flows, because capital flows pull trade flows with them, and it ought to be in China's interest to ensure reciprocal treatment. <clears throat> to the extent it doesn't, the U.S. has tools <clears throat> to help discipline that uh, investment uh, coming in. So this is all sort of in the enforcement sphere. But then the question is, is there a way to propel China's internal reform agenda? Right, third-party plenum laid it out, let the market be decisive, none of that was implemented. But parts of the, that program uh, were pretty good. How do you get back to it? How do you get it implemented? And then by using these more robust enforcement tools, ensure that it happens. So it seems to me the U.S. ought to be engaging China in a second series of negotiations. TPP would have provided the single best basis uh, to push China in that direction. But in its absence, one could easily uh, imagine an investment agreement built on the principle of reciprocity. The current negotiations are not built on that principle. One could imagine an agreement on digital trade and cyberspace, including content. One could imagine an agreement in government procurement targeting the state enterprises. There are a number of areas where progress would be very important to U.S. and foreign companies and would help make the trade relationship more reciprocal. So I think there is an engagement strategy, there's an enforcement strategy, and the last piece, it seems to me, is the U.S. making clear to China that our talks, there are many dialogues with China, as you know, I think it's over 90 now, they don't produce very much, that these dialogues, while nice as a happy to meet and get to know you, uh, are not, uh, are not uh, uh, productive, that what matters are results. We know the Chinese well. They know us well. Results are all that matters at this point. So as you mentioned, uh, U.S. trade law and WTO rules give the U.S. many tools with which to confront China. Um, 
And one of the ironies of the early days of the Trump administration is we haven't seen the, a new U.S. president do what most U.S. presidents have done upon taking office in the past two decades, which is to engage in some specific trade action like President Obama did on tire imports from China, like President Bush did on imports of steel, like President Reagan did on, on automobiles. Um, after all the tough talk on trade, we've seen nothing from the Trump administration. So one question is whether U.S. companies are partly to blame for this. Are they running scared of China? Uh, are they, is their pressure on the U.S. government to enforce trade laws lacking because they fear retribution and losing whatever gains they have made in the Chinese economy? So uh, first of all, uh, my impression of what the Trump administration is doing at the moment is trying to rustle up a bunch of cases it can self-initiate. So under U.S. law, um, uh, the Congress, the administration, other entities have a right of self-initiation of trade cases. Uh, U.S. government rarely does. It has always been viewed as, as sort of corporate welfare. If a company is hurting, it can well afford to bring its own cases. U.S. government doesn't have to pay for the privilege. Um, but um, the administration, and I think this is not wrong, has, has at least espoused the view that self-initiation is an important tool. Uh, and so my impression is that they're looking for cases to bring. It wouldn't surprise me uh, if we began to see some of the fruit of that internal uh, discussion um, uh, be more uh, evident. With respect to U.S. companies, it's a mixed bag. Uh, tech companies, uh, when acting in concert, have been extremely vocal and extremely active on the trade enforcement front. I'm thinking now of green dam encryption requirements, for example. The entire U.S. tech sector got together, none relented, uh, and uh, on the basis, I suppose, of safety in numbers, enlisted the United States government uh, to some uh, good success. There are other areas where companies are more reluctant to act. This is also true in Europe, but not quite as much. If they're standalone entities, or if they're the big fish in that industrial sector, and the smaller companies don't particularly provide cover. In those instances, companies would prefer to encourage the U.S. to negotiate a solution. And indeed, as, as anyone who's both a negotiator and a litigator will tell you, negotiation is always preferable. preferable. It's faster, and it tends to be more sure, right? If you're a litigator, you all lose cases. You should have won. And that weighs heavily in the minds of many uh, companies. But there are also instances where China does intimidate American companies, uh, where American companies believe there will be retribution if they file cases. There are some examples of this uh, where that has happened, and that is obviously uh, of great concern. I think that's another topic that becomes an important one for this new administration. So the tough talk about China during the 2016 presidential election came in large part out of a perception that China's uh, economic growth, China's massive exports to the U.S. market were 
uh, responsible for job loss in the United States. And work, in fact, we've done here uh, at UC San Diego shows that import competition from China has played a role in, in loss of manufacturing jobs, not that it hasn't brought you know, many other benefits too. Um, and that if you look at areas that were harder hit by import competition with China, they voted for President Trump uh, more strongly even when controlling for past political leanings. So what do you say to members of Congress who say, uh, look, my constituents are demanding retribution. We feel like we've lost out to China, that U.S. manufacturing is in a downward spiral and we have to do something. So I'd say a, a couple of points, first on the manufacturing side, uh, after I compliment you on the work that you did. Is it, it was really, I think this was a tremendous contribution and uh, added to the understanding of what happens when major countries join an existing system. Uh, so my congratulations to you and your colleagues for the work that you did. Um, I'd say a couple of things, first of all, on the manufacturing side. Of course, the U.S. has been losing manufacturing jobs since the 1970s. Some say since the late 1950s. Uh, we know, for example, in aggregate, uh, manufacturing jobs are down by about a third. Manufacturing output in the U.S. is up by two-thirds. We know in 2000, between 2000 and today, the auto industry in the U.S. lost about a third of its jobs. Its output is the same as it was in 2000, which is to say very little change. So we know, because of automation and technological change, we can make more with fewer people. Robotics, where the U.S. is uh, uh, significantly behind Japan in terms of deployment, will further exacerbate the trend. Once 3D manufacturing comes to scale in terms of uh, deployment as well as price, I think we'll see further challenges. So on the manufacturing side, there is a very substantial series of issues here that this administration needs to look at. It's not a one-year issue or a two-year issue. It's a five or 10-year issue. Where are we going? What will happen to manufacturing in general in the United States? Where will the new jobs come from? There needs to be quite a bit of thought around this because it ties in as well to adjustment and training, to wage insurance, to apprenticeship programs, and to readying people for jobs that actually exist today. So they're not off reading Moby Dick to try and re-educate themselves. They are training for a job for which they will be hired today, as many programs around the world do, but from which the U.S. has never learned. So this becomes very important. Second point I'd make is that, of course, 80% of our economy is services, not manufacturing. And the question then is, how do we further enhance that? And how do we increase the value added there? Uh, a whole other area that ought to be looked at in terms of the future of uh, our country. With respect, to the manufacturing loss attributed to China. Here is um, the element that has troubled me for many years now. 
When we did the WTO agreement, we knew it was possible imports could surge from China. And so we inserted a special provision, China-specific only, which was in place for 12 years, which covers the time of the work that you did, 12 years. It only just expired December 31, 2013. This provision allowed for any industry in the United States that felt it was being inundated by imports to bring a case, very fast track, very fast case, uh, and allow the President of the United States to impose relief. And the relief could be barring the imports, reducing them, imposing tariffs. You name it, the President had the authority to do it. In 12 years, there were seven cases. 12 years, seven cases this is crazy, right? Uh, two were dismissed as being frivolous. Four, relief was denied. Uh, one, relief was granted. So the typical response to that is, well, it's obvious why there were only seven cases, because U.S. companies were benefiting and they didn't want to bring cases. They were benefiting from trade with China and didn't want to get in the way of the progress they were making in China. But here's the problem with that explanation. When we wrote this provision, we allowed for many potential complainants. So it wasn't just the industry that could file a case against this surge of imports. It was the union. It was, if you were non-unionized, a group of employees. The Senate Finance Committee could have brought a case, the House Ways and Means Committee, the President of the United States, the International Trade Commission, all had standing to bring cases when they saw surges of imports in any sector of the economy. Where were they? Where were they? I'll never understand why this provision wasn't utilized as intended, as intended. Some might say, well, you bring a case, the president has to decide. That's a pretty tall order. But we have many statutes where the president is the one who has to decide, including some of our most popular trade remedy actions. So this issue of job loss, to me, was particularly troubling, having looked at, at the work that you've done, because it brought into sharp relief in my mind the tools the United States had and currently has to really address problems of this sort, which go either unutilized as in the example I've just given, or underutilized, too narrowly utilized. And so again, for this administration, looking at the tools we actually have, and these tools are all WTO legal, by the way, looking at these tools, thinking how to use them, anticipating the difficulties that may arise for pockets of workers, this is what an administration should be doing. 
And for some reason, both the Bush administration and Obama administrations failed to do that. Well, Ambassador Barshevsky, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, there's really nobody better positioned than you to walk us through the complexities of U.S. trade relations with China. Uh, it's our honor and privilege to have you here visiting us at UC San Diego. Thank well, you very much for your time. Thank you, and it's my great pleasure and honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to China 21, the podcast for the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. You can learn more about Professor Gordon Hansen's research on the impact of trading with China by visiting chinashock.info. To watch the lecture delivered by Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky, visit china.ucsd.edu. 谢谢大家。